Hey, this is Rob, and this is episode 46 of the Folly Coffee Podcast. Let's get it brewing. So I'll just get right back into the conversation we were having. Okay. Uh, I'm here with Andrew Miller, founder and partner of Cafe Imports, to put this into context. But uh, we've only met a couple times, and the first time was three years ago. Um, this was a really pivotal time for Folly because this is when I had become obsessed with specialty coffee for uh, two, about three years at this point. And it was a pivotal moment where I was working for Sam Adams, and I was like, I really like my job. I uh, really like what I'm doing, but this just, it's compelling and I, it, it, it just kept pulling me in. And so this is when I started to look at, well, what would the logistics of starting a business in Minnesota be where I'm originally from? And so I just literally Googled Minneapolis coffee importer so I could learn more about importing. And at the time, completely oblivious to the coffee, like the professional side of the coffee world, cafe imports popped up. I was like, whoa, there's actually a coffee importer in Minneapolis. I email the gen, uh, generic info email and uh, get a response from the owner, Andrew Miller. And so to be completely honest with you, when I got a really quick response from the owner, I'm like, oh, this must be a super, super small kind of like boutique you know, somebody like passion project kind of thing. And, uh, and then I showed up for you to give me the tour and I see what Cafe Imports is. It's super impressive. And the warehouse is like, even now to this day, you see people posting on their, their Instagrams of their roasters, the, the facility you have of the, all the green you're importing from around the world. And that always stuck with me that I was like, whoa, <laughs> even though he's been doing it since 1993 and he has one of the country's premier specialty coffee importers, he responded to the info email and gave some guys never met saying, hey, I'm not in coffee, but I'm thinking about roasting. And it, I mean, it wasn't a five minute tour. We were talking for an hour. You drove me from the office to, and that always stuck with me. And uh, that was the first time we met. And then it's been in passing uh, one time at the, uh, you guys throw awesome events when those were a thing. And from the AeroPress competition to the, uh, just the big party you threw for everybody. Uh, and I've always just respected what you've done in business. And uh, even though Cafe Imports is this massive in my world, being a really small roaster importer of specialty coffee that you're so ingrained in the community and you're always looking to build that out. And so with that long-winded intro of how we met, welcome to the Folly Coffee Podcast studio. Thank you. Um, do, do, I, do I have that right, 1993? Yeah, that's exactly right. So how do you get... In the, in the 93, is it still pretty much a, like a second wave world? Like Starbucks is still going gangbusters and that's kind of the coffee that people see as like really great coffee? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was, I mean, I think in 93, Caribou opened up in Minneapolis. So that was, you know, specialty coffee was sort of coming here. There, there were, there were roasters that, that had always been here, but they were kind of commercial kind of things. But specialty coffee was happening, happened on this kind of on the West Coast and then started moving east. And when Caribou kind of, you know, opened up here, we were just, I, the, my original partner was named, a guy named Jose Vito, a Brazilian dude, and he and I worked together in a restaurant, and it was really his idea, because he, he grew, his dad was a coffee farmer. Have you heard this story? I have okay. not. <laughs> okay, so Vito and I worked in a, a fine dining Italian restaurant together. I was going to school. He was, he was out of school, but he, um, so that we, he was from Brazil, so his dad was a farmer. He grew up in around coffee. He sees this, this thing happening. He gets some samples from his dad. We take it to, like, uh, Jim Cameron and uh, Coffee Teen Lee and European Roastery, and they said that it was good coffee. So we, I was helping him with his English primarily, just like because I'm an English major, so I was helping him write letters of introduction, business plan, that kind of stuff. And then we decided to do it together to open up a business. I borrowed $70,000 from my mother-in-law, and we bought a <laughs> container of coffee. So when you're tasting the coffee that he brought over – at this time, it sounds like you weren't like a huge coffee nerd. What was your first impression of tasting the coffee that he had brought over? Yeah, we didn't really know what we were doing. I yeah. mean, the thing is that is that you know. So I was a server at D'Amico Cucina, which is a, like I said, a fine dining Italian place, and we had bottles of Chianti that were twenty dollars, and you know, um, Rosso di Montalcino that's sixty dollars, and then a Barolo that's three hundred dollars. And you have to. We had gone through the training to understand what does that, you know. Is it the, and there's acidity and body and flavor and all those kind of similar components. And also it's the place, you know, the terroir, the, where it comes from that mm -hmm. kind of makes them different. So we had a good sense of 
you know, how things taste and what's good, but really didn't know what we were doing. But our first trip to Brazil, we went and did a cupping with the, the guy who exported the coffee for us. So it was pretty, pretty telling and got us down that path. How long of a process are we talking about from you meeting uh, at the kitchen to him bringing some coffee to saying, hey, maybe we should start doing this? Uh, it was pretty quick. I think we decided and we incorporated in like in March of 1993. And then that, so Brazil's harvesting in June. And I think that coffee was on the water in July <clears throat> when there was a frost. So we bought that coffee for like the market sea market was like 90 cents. Mm-hmm. And then there's a frost and the market went to $3. So it just, you know, we sold it immediately. Uh-huh. And being English major, not a business major, when the market was at the top, we bought two more. <laughs> <laughs> and then it collapsed. So it took me like years to pay back my mother-in-law. So that was not and not great. And then we found out she was bipolar. So she was like really excited when she gave me the money. And then mm-hmm. she was just crying and laying on the couch when, when I couldn't pay her back. So, you know, Christmas and Easter kind of sucked. And so you, you're just going door to door with green coffee saying, we brought this in from Brazil. Yeah. What was the process of importing like? Was that kind of sorted out because he had the relationship with the farm or did you have to learn how to do the full importing process? And how much has that changed since 93? Uh, we had to learn how to do it. And you can basically just find a freight, freight forwarder and someone to, you know, you had to, it was a learning experience, but you had to buy a customs bond and then you get someone to kind of do the clearing and importing it for you. And to be honest, we're, I think we still do that. We use somebody else to do, do the clear, clear the customs for us, but it's a lot more com- com- complicated now because of all the other origins and the kind of the state of the world, you know, just Africa and Indonesia coffee's coming in. It's more complicated. I mean, now there's a team of four that just do that. I was going to say, I went to a presentation at Cafe Imports about importing. Okay. And I was like, oh, because <laughs> it seems so simple. It's just you take the coffee, put it, get it through imports, but you realize all the different steps that go into it. Yeah. I mean, cargo, freight, everything. And then not even to mention like political and cultural climates of coming in and out of country. And I mean, hearing coffee coming out of a landlocked Nicaragua mm. and what it takes to get it here. And mm. I can't imagine being a logistics person in coffee. And then someone's like, when will it be here? And you're like, people who are yeah. used to Amazon where it's like, it'll be here at this time. It's like, hopefully next month right. or around this time. <laughs> yeah. Well, as people are trying to plan calendars. Yeah. And so you're going around with this coffee, knocking on doors. Are these connections you had within the industry or how are you finding the people first to even yeah, show? So we started locally, you know, selling coffee to, um, Ed Dunn was one of was a great customer. European Roastery, B and W Roasters. The guys are kind of still, you know, they're sort of still around, but they were kind of the like Ed Dunn was kind of one of the early kind of hippie pioneers of specialty coffee around here because that's you know he and his brother used to play you know guitars in their cafe cafe at night. They were like aging groovies, you know. But he cared about you know exotic, exotic coffees, good antiquas and good you know Brazils and that kind of stuff. So that was pretty easy because we were here and we had it and we would deliver it. So they're where these guys had been historically been buying their coffee from the West Coast and having it freighted in. So it was a lot easier for them. And that's, it's, it's funny when you think about Minnesota. I th- I, I've always said this the past years I've been in coffee. I go, it goes super under the radar as a coffee place. I, I never think of like the impact that Minnesota ha- has had, not only within the Midwest, but when you look at someone like a Cameron's who just had a massive sale, mm-hmm. Caribou, who years ago had the massive sale, and the and cafe imports being here. And it's funny because when I tell people, they go, where do you get your coffee? And I go, well, uh, our, one of our primary importers is uh, just north of Minneapolis. And they're like, wait, what? Yeah. Go, yeah. No, it's uh, if you're a specialty coffee worker, you've probably worked with cafe imports in some sense. Yeah. And it's like the, I don't know if you call it a hidden giant because we're, uh, but it's so funny to tell people that. Uh, and that's how I started Folly. And the, the funny thing is you're working with really big established roasters, but you're still willing to work with me as I'm yeah. like, Hey, is it cool if I pull, pull my RAV4 up to the back and this is really embarrassing, but can I just buy one bag? It's all I need right now. Yeah. And that'll last me a couple months. No, that's how we got started. It was just small, specialty roasters. And sometimes they grow up and sometimes they, I mean, sometimes they get bigger and sometimes they don't, but they're still, that's kind of the heart and the soul of it is, you know, people who have passion and people who care about the product, you know, that's how we started in the early days. I would just go to the library and get the, phone book from Chicago, for instance, and go to the yellow pages and go under the, the seas <laughs> and just call people. Was there um, kind of a high-end market at this point? 
uh, the names you've listed so far, like Cameron's and Caribou, were definitely ahead of the trend at the time in terms of the standard quality of coffee. Uh, or did that develop later in the process? I think it came later. I mean, it, like you said, it grew up into the third wave and people who were, you know, like intelligentsia and counterculture and, you know, Dwayne du- in, in Oregon, Stumptown. Those, cause, and a big, and we kind of grew up with it. It was just, mm. I mean, it's really, when people ask me, I'd say it's just really, dumb luck, you know, hard work and, and that, that kind of stuff that got us where we were, but in good timing mm-hmm. because my partner, Jason, who started doing all this in there, doing all the sourcing used to be a big part of cup of excellence. So we do, and I would, I would too, we do couple of excellence juries because that's where you find which part of the countries are the best producers and um, who are the best producers. You know, we learned after 10 years of Cup of Excellence competitions in Colombia that the be- all of the winners were coming from the south. They're all coming from Nariño and Tolima and Huila. So we that's where we buy all our coffee. And you meet some of the people like we met a producer in El Salvador because he won the contest. You know, so Jason would go down there with you know Jeff Watts and Dwayne from Stumptown, and um, they would pick out coffees and then we would bring them in for those guys. So they were just getting better. They're ramping up. The SCA was ramping up with the Roasters Guild and the Barista Guild, and you know the. I mean, I guess technology was coming, you know, playing a big part of the brewing process and that kind of stuff too. It's funny to hear names like Stumptown that just I geek out on when you look at it. To me, it's like, oh, this is like a heritage. Like this is one of the leaders at that time. What is someone like Stumptown? Is it, uh, one dude. That's what I'm saying. It's like, <laughs> it's it's funny to hear these names, but to put it in context, and that's that has to be kind of part of what plays into still willing to meet with me is I look at Stumptown and be like, yeah, of course they were always that and yeah. then you're like no it started with one guy really ahead of his time with yeah. really great coffee right was it more of a push or a pull with the coffees you were sourcing did you source these cup of excellent coffees and then find the right people for them or did you have people like Dwayne as some town saying hey we want to push the boundaries or really up the quality here I guess it's a combination I mean I, I know we were doing in the early days when we were doing stuff with Dumb Brothers they you know, they weren't that big, but we would find something that was really remarkable and we would sort of split it. Like there was a good and good coffee from Atitlan out of Guatemala. And they're like, yeah, we can take 125 bags. And we're like, great, we'll take 125 bags and sell that to and have, make that available to anybody who's around. But I mean, I guess to answer your question, the, it was sort of just um, putting the get you have to have those things on the shelf. It's just like a wine store or a high end grocery store. You can't if you're out of bread one day and then the next day you're out of bread, then people are going to go somewhere else. So we have to kind of stock the shelves with and levels of quality because you, we know that roasters have the same issues that we do is we have some people who want really top, top stuff. And some people need to sell, you know, maybe to the gas station next door just to kind of turn, turn the wheels, you know, so you end up with levels of quality. Outside of the initial relationship you already had with the farm in Brazil, how do you go about, finding farms to start sourcing from. You said you started noticing great coffees coming out of the su- southern, region, uh, southern region of Colombia. How did you stumble upon that? Um, so, I mean, there, it's a little bit different. That's the difficult thing about coffee is every origin is, is unique and completely different. Like you were saying about Nicaragua. Yeah, you, to get coffee out of Nicaragua, you have to drive it to Honduras because they don't have a port. So it's FOT. So, you know, SC, the SCA and the shows had played a big part mm. in that. You know, I went to Nicaragua... And we used to go there just to meet the farmers and to under, and try to learn what's behind this. You know, what what is it about Antigua that's unique? What is it about Atitlan that's unique? And, San, you know, in Costa Rica is Terrazu and other regions. So we were always trying to push the boundaries and find, explore new territories and new regions and find top-notch producers. So going to Cup of Excellence, going to the SCA and seeing those shows and meeting people. And it's just a, it's just a constant. I mean, just today I was just emailing an Indian shipper that I've never talked to before. I'm trying to, because I know somebody who has this coffee and it's outstanding. So mm-hmm. I'm, you know, we're still, we're constantly scouring the world for you know new partners or better partners or good partners. When you find a good partner and you're tasting the coffees and it's got a unique story and it's, it's, it's the quality standards that you're looking for. How do you begin that relationship? Is it, uh, is it a short term kind of like, we'll do it this year and then we'll talk next year? Or is the goal with a new farmer to build a longer lasting relationship? From our perspective, it's, you know, are we, like, I work in Colombia primarily. That's my, been my origin for the last 10 years. And because it's also a, a really diverse country and it's a great sort of, 
I don't want to say training ground, but it's where we, because I'm there and I'm like in the field. I'm like, what's with the pink beans? And they're like, oh, it's a, it's a type of bourbon. I'm like, what do you do with it? And he goes, oh, we just mix it together. And I said, so it's a pink bourbon you're saying? And he's like, yeah, we just mix it together. I'm like, could you keep it separate? <laughs> you know, so we, and then we, at one point we were like, I was like, wow, coffees from Kauka taste a lot different than co- coffees from Wheela. And they're like, yeah, it's hot, it's a different weather pattern, even though it's just right across the mountain. So it's terroir. So that, I'm like, that's just like Sonoma Valley, you know, or, you know, some other, you know, different, that's, that's terroir, that's regional differences, you know, so why don't we call these regional selects and do, you know, so that's kind of been our, our proving ground. And, but to answer your question about the farmers, the challenge for us sometimes is one year, the farm might be outstanding and the coffees are 90 points and the next year it's not. So it's, we, we want to be, be there for them all the time. So we kind of can create these tiers. Like if it's 90 points, we'll pay you $5. Mm-hmm. If it's, you know, 88 points, we or 86 points, we'll pay you two fifty. And if it's 80 points, it's, it's going to be less money. And you have to understand that, you know, so try to be a good, a good partner long-term for in good times and bad. Yeah. And even knowing that if it's not that same coffee, that there's still a deal in place has yes. to be pretty beneficial for farms. Uh, Cause this is coming from the beer world. I find there, there are a lot of parallels between uh, beer and coffee, especially with craft beer and what, what Absolutely. happened with that and what's happening now with third wave coffee. And one of the funny case studies in beer is the biggest challenge comes down to the hops is how do you find these specialty hops and Budweiser what they would do is go to farms that were growing these amazing hops and they go we just need you to grow magnum because it's super high alpha acid means we have to use very little of it to be able to bitter the Mm. beer enough does that happen in coffee where someone with enough buying power would go in and say hey, we just need this quality. It's low, it's cheap, it's what we do, but we'll buy your entire lot? Uh, that, I mean, when it gets into the big and cheap, then you're kind of in the commercial coffee mm-hmm. spe- sector, and we don't really don't really work there. I mean, yes, like Vietnam. <laughs> I mean, they didn't ever grow coffee at all. Mm-hmm. And then USAID went in there and started planting coffee, you know, teaching them how to grow coffee in the, I guess, in the 90s. And now they're the second largest producer in the world, and it's Robusta, so we don't use it. It's in the, all in the coffee sector, but yeah, so somebody got them to plant that kind of coffee. But I guess in, in our in our sector, you know, a lot of a lot of the stuff that's been happening lately is in varietals. You know, like SL twenty eight from Kenya, yeah. or the Pink Bourbon, or the Geishas. You know, for that are happening in Panama. So we th- these guys know that if the, they just see it in the because now i mean everybody's connected now so they know that wow this uh, this geisha sold for three hundred dollars or that you know these contest coffees that was a pink for bone sold for 50 bucks so they do it on the, they plant them on their own from a business perspective was there ever the temptation to get into the robusta game to get no. into the see what's the motivation behind i have to imagine there are some incredibly large contracts for Robusta, for commodity coffee, how and why were you able to never be tempted by that? Because I have to imagine the dollars out there are pretty astounding. It's, (laughs) I guess it's personal preference. It's like beer. I mean, it's like, uh, I don't, I don't like, I don't buy the two buck chuck. You know, I like good wine. I mean, that's wine, but I mean, beer, and I don't, I don't drink like Coors and Budweiser these days when I can find a juicy IPA that's so tasty and full of flavor and pr- produced by a local craft person. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to support the food industry and the, and the local businesses. And the most of the, I, I think like probably 70% of the world coffee is in the commercial sector mm-hmm. and it's controlled by f- like four or five major multinationals that are doing cocoa, sugar, rubber, coffee. And that's, that's not my style. <laughs> <laughs> so just, the the qual that that's that's a really good thing to it, it's good because uh, I th- I think sometimes it happens to me on the on the coffee roaster side as you go gosh if we could just lower the price a little yeah. bit we might be able to attract some of these really big r- restaurant groups that don't right. care about their coffee but then you realize oh but then you're competing with something that's not what we do it's right. not we don't get excited about it and I think that always translates. So when you launch in 1993, you get that first crop and you sell the first one because of the, the timing mm-hmm. of the, the price. How quickly do things start to grow? And when do you consider like the real, like getting into the groove of getting into the groove of the business happened after launching? 
I think I waited tables for the first three years, <laughs> if that's any gives you any sense. Because <laughs> so we were married, and my wife was pregnant, and this is when I got into this business because I was trying to get into grad school. So two years I had applied to grad school and didn't didn't get in, and then we got, I got married, and then we got pregnant, and then she's like, eh. Maybe you should get a job. <laughs> so that's when he launched into that. And I'd say I, the specialty think, <laughs> coffee world got really lucky that you didn't get into <laughs> business school. Maybe. But um, so the big one of the big mistakes we made is we thought that we could do it with one origin. We thought we should just mm. trade Brazilian coffees. And then we realized that, oh, these guys, that's just one of their ingredients. They're using Colombian. So then we started branching out into Colombians. And we were honestly buying... I did, you know, I did some Nicaraguans directly with a really great group. and But we were buying some other origins from you know royal coffee and ken calf coffee in toronto other bigger importers to kind of make the whole package but at that point we were vito and i were still delivering coffee so we drove to chicago i drove to chicago every two weeks with a load of truck with a load of coffee and carried it in turned around and came home that's awesome because so, it's, it's so it's it's that and that's so important to hear for me sometimes and also for anyone that's trying to do business because you just assume oh you go to cafe imports and it's just oh doing millions of pounds yeah. of green there, there must just be a big machine behind this, and to have started it out of a truck and waiting tables for three years, how, how long until after that did things start to like really gain momentum? You know, it was it, it was just a slow and gradual, okay. slow gradual growth. You know, we just kind of grew. I mean, we were you know near that small. You're growing at a hundred percent or two hundred percent every year, just little by little. But I remember, you know, nineteen ninety seven. Maybe I had a. I think I was making like forty thousand dollars, so I've you know could, could quit quit my waiting waiting job. Yeah, <laughs> and then it's just like step by step, and then so like my partner Jason, he was a trader, like a commodities trader, and his wife is from here. I think he's from from Indiana, and he they ended up moving here, and he had had a midlife crisis at the age of like maybe he was forty. <laughs> And he's, his wife was working at the Mayo and he was roasting coffee in his garage and he's a big food nerd and, you know, beer nerd and brewing his own beer and hard ciders and got a sample restaurant here and he came in one day and to pick up some samples and he was, we was cupping coffee with the guy from B&W and he, I said, he's joined us in the cupping table and we were talking about our kids and he told me later, he said, I've never in my work experience had anybody talked about children with anybody in my work experience. This is so weird to me. <laughs> and he's like, I can come in and hedge your, trade your, hedge your book. Cause we have to hedge commodities, which once you get to a certain size, cause if you buy the coffee, the market's $2 and then it drops, you have to have a mechanism to lower the price with the commodity market. Mm. So he's like, I'll hedge your book for you. And just to, just to hang out here, you know, <laughs> and that kind of was a sort of a pivotal moment because we were getting to the size where we couldn't afford to not be, you know, ha- you know, taking the risk out of the inventory that we owned. Is that something you were actively pursuing or was it just like, no, yeah, did, that'll happen someday? I didn't even know it existed. <laughs> <laughs> That's, there are so many things that I've had along in yeah. just two years. I'm like, man, I wish I would have known about this like a year ago. My I life know. would be so much easier. English major. <laughs> I, I always, like bad debt. We lost a lot of money when people were going, you know, just because they were too nice. They're like, yeah. sure. They're like, we'll pay you next week. We'll pay you next month. And then it's turned into rolls into $30,000 and they shut their doors, you know, kind of thing. I just always, my wife's like, you can't afford any more learning experiences. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's really accurate. Yeah. <laughs> Once he starts hedging the coffee and starts streamlining things, what become the priority as you're growing as a business? Do are you do you have a five-year plan in place? You're like, oh, in five years, this is probably where we'll be. So the, here's ABC that needs to get done. Or is it kind of flying by the seat of the pants? We're flying by the seat of our pants. I remember in those days we had uh, our uh, post-it notes were our contract number. So there was a Word document. You write a contract on a Word document. You got to get the post-it note and that's your contract number. So we didn't have a system. Um, we had to, at one point we hired a company from Louisiana. There's a business consulting company that could come in and give us just some over overarching advice, you know, and what, what, and it was really helpful. Like how to, how to price your, how to price your coffees, how to compensate employees, how some business structure. How did you find a company in Louisiana to help you with that? I don't even remember. It was just, I think, I don't know. Yeah. I remember. It was a businessconsulting.com or something like that. I, I think I struggle with that sometimes that I think 
well, no one knows my business. I can't hire someone to tell me how to do business. Yeah. And then you realize, you go, oh, I don't really know anything. And they've seen a thousand case studies of what I'm doing right now. And their yeah. advice is probably much better strategically than what I'm doing. Yeah. And, and honestly, you know, in the over the last 10 years, it's probably people. I mean, some really, we had some, had a CFO years ago who's gone now who, was he was from a business environment. So he actually put a lot of things in place that we lacked, you know, just like systems and organization and stuff. And he was, that it just wasn't a good fit because he was an accountant. We didn't, we were sort of like the supply side economics, yeah. just spend money. Let's just have a party. Then customers will come. <laughs> and he's, and he's like, no, you can't. What's the money. ROI on a party. Exactly. I need to be able to write this off and balance it in the books. Yeah. But then also young, innovative, Smart people. I do you know know Noah, right? Yeah. Yes. From a sales perspective, I mean, other pe- people who are also passionate and share the same values, but then can work in an, in another function. As you're bringing in all these coffees, where are you storing them initially? You said you're driving trucks down to Chicago. Where's all the green coffee that you're bringing in being stored? Yeah, and our, so our, our our initial warehouse is kind of right up the street from our office now on 1621 East Hennepin. We had a little warehouse and we had a just a pallet jack and we could store about a container and a half of coffee there. And then we took more of that space. And then we eventually we moved to energy park drive with the bigger warehouse and an office. We just keep, keep, you know, you keep just slow growth and continue to, you know, need more space. I mean, coffee is one of those things. It's only harvested once a year. Yeah. So, and we sell guats all year long. So when the guat crop comes in, we get all of them and sit on them. That to me is terrifying as a business <laughs> owner where I'm like, okay, we're growing a hundred, somewhere between a hundred and 200% this year. Uh, this market continues to grow. And also I need to just decide how much of this Guatemala mm-hmm. we're going to sell this year. Did you find customers, customers would be flexible with you on which coffee was offered or would they get upset that you're like, this Guatemala is out. You told us you'd have it for the full year. How, how how did that relationship work with these more established partners that need, especially in the second wave, they need yeah. a consistent bean and roast on an annual basis? Yeah, well, the, I mean, some of the bigger ones or more, some of the bigger customers will just contract. I mean, I, I have some cu- customers like that, like Dunn Brothers, for instance, or Cameron's that would just, they do a six month contract. Mm-hmm. So then you, and we kind of, t- we need to know that we need to time it like that Jan, Feb, March period is delicate or dicey because Mm -hmm. new crop centrals are coming in, new crop Mexicans are coming in. And if the crop is late, then you're, can be in trouble. So we, you know, it's just, it's delicate, but every year we get together and we talk about what we have and what's selling and make, make it, take a guess. And so if they, if they have a six month contract and they, they end up selling more of that than they thought, then at least they go, well, you did your part on the contract. Yeah. We'll be more flexible at that point. So yes. it's almost meeting in the middle on just trying to get the planning side of it done because yeah. that, that's the side that's so above my head on the importing side, especially after going to that meeting and just learning that, oh, you don't even know what day this is going to arrive. And right. you go, well, it's probably some part here in the ocean, we yeah. think, and the technology that's increasing to be able to track things. How much has that changed since you started of being able to like hone in that delivery process and knowing where things are and when they'll land? You know, I think the technology has improved greatly, but it's still, you're still buying shipping coffee from a third world country or Africa. And that's the part that's just not, there's not that sort of urgency there that we have here or that you see in Europe. Like, it's like, yeah, we'll, we'll get, we haven't shipped it yet, but we're going to. I'm like, okay. The thing I bought from you, like I, th- I thought once I paid that, that just hits the ground. Yeah. When you're working with these farms, what kind of, um, outside of the quality of the coffee, what are you looking for in a farm that cafe imports does work with or will work with? Well, I think primarily we're, cause our, our values are to increase the livelihood of everybody in the chains, you know, th- through education and we're, we're, so I think we're looking for partners that do good work. You know, we don't like, there's a, there's a, a exporter out of Ethiopia that once we went to visit him, we could see that the employees, the people that were working there were not happy. And there were people, you know, like guards around with guns and he was, you could t- see, we could see him bribing people and we're just like, this, this doesn't feel right you know. And we've learned later that, yeah, he's not, he's kind of a, a bad actor. So we're looking for people who share our values and doing, and doing good things and supporting small producers and, you know, top quality coffees. 
I mean, if they a small producer, in, I mean, the average farm in Columbia, Southern Columbia is 1.5 hectares or three acres. So they're going to produce maybe 50 bags of coffee a mm. year, you know. So if they can, if you can move, help them move up that food quality chain, up that food chain, then they can get more money, you know. So if we can go in there with, like our export partner out of, out of Columbia, Ben Export, they have an agronomist that goes in and says, listen, you need to ferment this a little, like, a little longer. And if you ferment it longer, it will be better. Or you need to fertilize more often you need to fertilize twice a year and if you do that you'll get more money kind of thing you know and so it's working with the farms that if you can do these mm-hmm. things the quality of the coffee will increase and that's that's coffee to me was a taste first driven thing i had that first cup i said it on this podcast probably 10 times but it was sump coffee down in st louis i'm sure you're familiar with them they're this amazing high-end roaster oh, I know him, yeah 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 he's got the big old <laughs> yes. beard scott yeah uh and he he's another guy that i'm not sure if he knows who i am but i was just like that guy that yeah. kept showing up to the shop and asking all these stupid questions but i had that first cup and it was just like what did you is empty shop at the time just because it was the afternoon i was like what'd you do to this and the yeah. priest uh, explained it and i go oh i need to know absolutely everything about this and so it was a taste first driven thing but what really led to me wanting to do this as a business is from top to bottom, specialty coffee, high-end specifically, the good it can do. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And the kind of upsetting thing about that is on the other side that the the kind of standards and norms that have been in place for so many decades that people look at what we do and they're like, oh, your coffee is on the at grocery fourteen ninety nine on shelf or at online mm-hmm. can go up to twenty dollars. Why are you so expensive? And I go, anything less than what we're charging for some of our coffees, and you're probably buying coffee that has unethical practices exactly. going on with it. And that's what was uh, a little disturbing, but also very um, exciting about the industry grow- growing mm-hmm. is that is, is this other aspect that's like what you do and only working in specialty coffee and never even really considering the C grade just because of everything, you just, the quality, the ethics, the, what has to go on for it to be that cheap. It's like, oh, if I can grow my business and as Cafe Imports grows, there's beneficiaries along the entire mm-hmm. supply chain, not just the importer, not just the end roaster. And that's what was really exciting to me. Uh, and obviously, as it lies today, fair trade and organic are just – Everybody knows what these terms mean. They've been uh, marketed to the point where people just like kind of expect this or at least know very well what it is. Was this something people were talking about when you launched in 93? Were customers asking, is this fair trade organic? No, I think that's about the time that fair trade came around. Okay. I mean, and it was a, the guy who from Peace Coffee who was kind of instrumental in getting it started here in Minneapolis. Headwaters, I think, was the, was the name of the organization. So it was new. And it was, uh, I, you know, it also got a lot of press in the early days. It got a lot of press for in the, like the New York Times and it was pushed a lot in the churches. So it got a lot of traction, but a lot of people didn't quite understand it. And especially, and especially from the or, origin side. Cause it seems to be a pretty complex issue when you break down into it, because you can pay, there's a, there's a fair trade price mm-hmm. and you can pay well above that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a, but it could be not fair trade certified. So that's where it gets kind of complicated of, what is the, and I'm just kind of like trying to get a better understanding of this because I basically pick everyone's brain about this that I can, is what is the big difference between a coffee where I'm paying above a fair trade price versus a coffee that's fair trade certified at the same price? Like what's going on at origin with the importers? What all has to happen for that process of certification? Okay, so I mean the fair trade coffees, it's a, you know, it's a FLO, Fair Trade Labeling Organization based out of Denmark, I think somewhere in Europe, who started this? And it basically, it's, in simplest terms, it's kind of like a subsidy. If the C market goes below a dollar twenty, you pretend that it didn't. I mean, the fair trade fair trade minimum is a dollar, so maybe it's a dollar forty. So a dollar ninety is the fair trade minimum price, mm-hmm. and twenty five cents of that is the organic premium, and twenty five cents of it is the social premium that goes to the association. So when the market drops below one forty, you just pretend that it doesn't didn't. So you're always paying that minimum of a dollar ninety. And for, so for a coffee that's not fair trade certified, so let's say we've got like a coffee that's sitting at $4, you yeah. have a $4 uh, pound for a green coffee, and then the market is at a dollar twenty, and then it dips down to, let's just say a dollar. Mm-hmm. Is that coffee that's fair trade certified going to stay at four or would that go to three eighty? The fair trade one would stay. If you're at under one twenty, it's never going to get any cheaper. And unless the green importer had, has hedged it, then he can 
afford to lower the price. Okay. That makes no, no, <laughs> so that, every that once in a while you'll see that happen. What we tend when the markets, but there's also coffees out there that are just three dollars. Yeah, and, uh, you know, Ethiopian naturals or Ethiopian yoga chefs or some Kenyans that are just they're just five dollars because that's what the market will bear. You know. Yeah, and that's that's kind of the thing. Is it was a really tough choice for me early on because there's a lot of grocers and co-ops and customers that say I won't look at something unless it's certified and you can send me that certification. Sure. And Ethiopia was actually the one of the big motivating factors that I go, well, there's it's rare to find a fair trade certified Ethiopia because mm-hmm. all their coffees are above fair trade price and it would cost them money mm-hmm. to continue to sell the same coffee. Um, but sometimes you have coffees that are a lot of our fair trade organic coffees are more than the minimum because they're really good. Yeah. Like the- <laughs> and that that's where okay. it, it took me a long time to dig through it where I was yeah. like, wait, a fair trade is a dollar twenty like. I, we, we would never even get close to that. So wh- where is this premium? But then you realize that the organization, it's like the big values, probably around that, the farms producing primarily that quality of coffee. Is that fair to say? And then uh, that if you're producing coffees that hover around that seed price or just above, that that would be the big protection? Or what do you think? Well, if you most of the fair trade producers are cooperative. So it's an association of a number of producers that band together, just like the dairy co-ops do here mm-hmm. and utilize, you know, buying power to buy fertilizers or to reuse trucks and such. So the co-op is certified and then that they would then distribute that social premium. But there is also going to be a premium on quality just because mm-hmm. if it's a, you know, the Guatemalan Huawei Tenango that's cupping at 86 points, it's worth more than a dollar ninety. Yeah. The market, C market's a dollar 25 like it is today those coffees are at least you know two dollars and 30 cents or something because they're good and they should be (laughs) right yeah and that's kind of the funny thing is uh that that's what we decide is you go you know what we're going to choose we're going to make sure the ethical side is taken care of and so that's why we're super particular about the importers we work with the farms we work with that let's make sure like the ethical transparency is there to make sure that not only that the prices seems fair but Mm -hmm. also that uh everybody's being treated well in the process and by picking on taste generally you're going to find coffees that are well above that price because if it's going to match the quality that we're looking for uh and and that's kind of how we do it yeah and you'd see the same thing in good wines or good beers too it's they're people who care about the process and they care about the ingredients and they care about all the things that surround that so can i ask you a question the coffee in st louis at stump was it uh stump s-u-m-p yeah he was on a uh tour of ours so this guy's like six four yeah. so some some, some their branding is so cool it's like so there's uh, their branding is a skull with a big beard and then you see scott he's really tall guy with a big beard and it's yeah. just like and so we're in columbia on, on a it's a best cup tour so we have like 20 clients here and every day we go and cup coffees then we get in this bus like this open chiva bus and we drive up to and visit a farm but everywhere we go people were just freaked out because these are you know colombian yeah. people that are like four foot tall mm-hmm. and they're just like oh my god he's gonna eat me but it just it was really fun to have him on, the, on a tour in a you know in, in the countryside of yeah and he's just like then the nicest right. most intentional guy and just that was my first interaction with somebody that like was talking about coffee in a way where i just tore through their youtube channel mm-hmm. and i was just talked about coffee in a way that i go I didn't even know this world existed. Yeah. So what was it about that cup? Was the roast or the brewing it, mechanism? A little bit of everything. Okay. It was an is is a natural Ethiopian Yurgashev okay. where like the the coffee specialty nerds eyes are rolling back right. of the head. Oh, natural Yurgashev. Oh, I remember my first cup, but it was literally my first cup. Yeah. And I I always recommend naturally processed coffees for someone who's like why do you get excited about this? Because mm-hmm. it's so different. Mm-hmm. It's I, I know now that's like they're from a scoring perspective, from a just perception within the industry that that coffee is kind of like the played out coffee sometimes. But I'm like, but there are people who've never had a cup that if they tasted something that had notes of blueberries yeah. popping out of it, that like that's going to blow someone's mm-hmm. mind. And I, I'm not even exaggerating when I say that's that's the coffee we launched with. And you send that out to people and – it's it's funny because for the first six months, the only people buying Folly are people I know personally. Mm-hmm. But the best comment I can get is like, whoa, this is actually what you were saying it was. Yeah. And when you say something tastes like blueberries, it's, it's again, I think people have been given tasting notes about coffee. Folgers is going to tell you that we 
only source the best and it's uh, dark, the, you know, dark chocolate. And then they taste it and you're like, oh, this is bitter. Mm-hmm. And that's all it is. And so when they hear somebody say blueberries, they're like, that sounds bogus. Mm-hmm. But it, it was just getting that. It was just black coffee. And at that point, you know, I was a sales rep for Sam Adams. So my only coffee was just functional, just as big a size you have. <laughs> I drink it black so that I'm not taking in too much sugar throughout the day. Yeah. And it's just like you choke it down and then you feel awake. Yeah. And that was the first cup that uh, it I was thinking about it as I was drinking it. And uh, I, I was a huge, huge beer nerd at Sam Adams. Like Cicerone certification was, I had just tried to pursue the advanced exam. Uh, the first one they hosted, I missed it by three points. And I was studying for three hours a day for four months. And then this was right after that happened. And so I was like, I'm going to take at least a month off before I start studying like that again. And so I had this big void. <laughs> I had built it into my routine that I'm going to study for two to three hours mm-hmm. a day. And then that disappeared. And so I think part of it was the combination of that blew my mind from a taste perspective. And I'd been training tasting for three years at that point. Uh, And I didn't have the coffee vocabulary, but there were things in it that I go, this is wild. It it did remind me of like red wine Mm -hmm. that like you get some crazy like natural wines that have these notes that you go, I've never tasted something like that combined with the whole world that I didn't know existed. And then the void that I had from not studying, it just, it was, it was like, (laughs) it was like you dropped a match on some dry kindling in a a dry forest. Nice. And so, yeah, I I was fortunate that at the time I was in St. Louis, or I was actually Champaign, Illinois at the time, but quickly moved to St. Louis when I got a promotion and having uh, sump coffee there and um, blueprint Mm -hmm. is another great roaster down there that, there's these two shops that are do, really pushing the boundaries nationally on coffee. And I just got fortunate that they happen to be in my backyard. Mm-hmm. And I also had a coworker who used to sell specialty coffee. Um, I can't even recall for who at this point, but he would give me recommendations on where to go. Sure. And so, it, yeah, it, it, I add your classic, like that natural yoga chef. Mm-hmm. I want, I want natural thing, whatever that is. I want all those. And yeah. then you start learning about wash process and you learn about different and origin. And then it just snowballed and, uh, it really was, it was, I did coffee fest in Nashville, uh, in early March. And that was where I was like, I think I might be doing this as a business. <laughs> and, and then I was deciding if I'm going to do this, where would I do it? Cause I'm from Minnesota, but I didn't want to do it just because of that. I didn't yeah. want to force it in a place where it wouldn't work, but I came back and I go, there's some roasters doing amazing things here, but I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of room. Mm-hmm. When you look at Minnesota from a term it was like craft beer, craft spirits, farm to table food, the yep. intentionality behind what people consume here, I go, there's, there's room. Yeah. And then I came back and that, that's where I met you yeah. or I was like, but the, the missing part is like, I don't know where to get the coffee. How do I source coffees? How do I know it's good coffee that it's at that point I was confident in my tasting mm-hmm. abilities, but like, who's going to roast the coffee? Cause I started to roast and I was like, Oh, that this cannot be me. What roaster did you get? Uh, I had the Alio Bullet R1. Okay. So I was roasting, you know, 500 grams. Just yeah. to le- I wanted to learn how it worked. Yeah. And that's where you realize, oh, this isn't just making a bean brown. Right. And especially when you're working with really high-end coffee, roasting really lightly. And so, uh, yeah, that, that meeting with you is really pivotal because I not only realized that, whoa, this – amazing importers in my backyard mm-hmm. and he'd be cool with me getting one bag at a time, uh, which was hugely helpful. But also the fact that like you were willing to just tour yeah. and that it was like, Oh, this, cause that was my big worry is how do you get anyone to take you seriously when mm-hmm. you go, I have no professional experience. Mm-hmm. I know we've never met. Uh, and <laughs> you can name the laundry list of reasons to why I'm not going to waste my time with this guy. Yeah. And that, uh, that act was like, oh, this industry is full of amazing people mm-hmm. doing really great things. And in, in the high end, especially, you, I think you find very intentional people. Mm-hmm. And it was, it's cool that when I ask you, did you ever think, think about C-grade? You're like, no. <laughs> Even though, like, I'm sure there's massive opportunities. Uh, and and that, that's kind of how it started. It was, yeah, some coffee in St. Louis and then everywhere within four hours and then getting Southwest flights to both coasts. And then that's where I was like, yeah, this is, this is going to happen. Right. Yeah. And, and, um, that, yeah, the first coffee we sourced was, I picked it up at cafe imports, uh, natural Ethiopian Mm -hmm. yoga chef. And then it's working like four jobs and use that money to buy the next, uh, three or four bags. And then, uh, we, we started going from there, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, just even, even your team, uh, it was so impactful in, in folly because I had no idea what I was doing. Mm -hmm. So I would just ask 
our sales reps and be like, what would you do yeah. if I wanted a coffee to be like this? And to be like, you should get this one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that, that was what was really impressive to me is the willingness to bend over backwards for someone where it's like, I know the time you're spending with me is probably disproportionate mm-hmm. in terms of like ROI in a business sense. But at no point did I ever get the sense mm-hmm. that what I was doing was like annoying right. or just, which I get super, super self-conscious about in the, the spectrum of coffee, especially yeah. what, how, how did you decide to grow like the, um, the team in terms of like, what are the next hires or who should we hire next? Is it, again, I, I feel like I might know the answer at this point. Did you have a plan of this will be our next hire? <laughs> or is it, we, we have too much. Yeah. Is that's usually you're just like, you know, banging your head against the walls because there's just too much to do. And you know, I have a, I have some friends who are like, they're more com- commercial traders. So mm-hmm. he works in New York, a guy from Minnesota actually. And there's three traders in his, at his desk and they all wear suits and they all sit at a desk and they probably do five times the coffee that we do where we have, you know, that we have 30 people in Minneapolis you know, because we take the time to talk to smaller mm-hmm. roasters. You know, so we have eight salespeople and three customer service. Well, we had four customer service reps before COVID, but just because it takes that much time to talk about thing, you know, and to sell one bag of coffee, you'll be on the phone for 15 minutes. Yeah. And it's, it's hard sometimes because you know, when you get like a brand new person, they're like, so coffee comes from a tree, right? And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and it's, it's it I'm like, gonna be here for 30 minutes. You find someone with a new business. That's so exciting. Yeah. Like, me. But we I, do that. And it's like, I want to talk about coffee for hours. Right. And thankfully I'm like, they don't have hours. But oh. I have customers that are from that were from the early days, like Door County Coffee in Door County, Wisconsin. I used to drive there with a van full of coffee, and it's a seven-hour drive. And I used to do it once a month. And they've been buying all of their coffee from me for 20 years. I mean, you, that's how I think that's also how you build that kind of loyalty. It's a relationship. I'm, Vicky started this business in, wasn't, wasn't in Door County. It was another town on the lake and it was all women. So this, you know, 25 years ago to start an all women's business in the countryside in Wisconsin, that was gutsy. Yeah. <laughs> so it was a women owned business, women run, run business. And we have just a, re- a relationship, a rapport that we've built over 20 some years. And she buys every, all of it from me now. And, and that's something that it, <laughs> in today's world of business, I think everybody wants, oh, I have this revolutionary idea. Mm-hmm. It's work smarter, not harder all the time. And I'm just going to put this idea down. And I'll take off on its own. When in reality, most businesses, that is not the case, yeah. especially in coffee. Mm-hmm. It's I, One of the running jokes is like, hey, I designed this new brewer that's going to change everything. <laughs> and you're like, okay, well, I mean- it's a pour over, but it's this shape. And you're like, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought that's where that was going. But it, I think the other part of coffee is you find a lot of passionate people, but also a lot of really hard workers. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's industries where you could make more money. Mm-hmm. I mean, even just alluding to the C market, if you really want to trade commodities, there's a lot more like chance yeah. of becoming fabulously wealthy through that. Yep. Uh, w- w- when you're hiring people, uh, or I should say when you were, uh, and when you are evaluating new people, do you have a process of like what you're looking for in that person? Where do you value experience in coffee versus like this is a good fit for the team? Um, usually it's more of a good fit for the team. And it's also smart people because they, smart people can kind of figure out how to do any, you know, all, all kinds of things. You know, that's kind of, kind of something that we're always looking for. But these days we tend to have the sales team. We have a number of people interview the, the candidate, for instance, somebody from accounting somebody from sensory analysis mm. and, the, you know, a couple of salespeople and try to get a sense of what kind of a person this is and would it be a good fit. And then it's really their, their teammates kind of choose the, choose the people. But we tend to hire people that are, have coffee experience, but probably not green coffee experience. Mm. So they know how to make a pour over and how to pull a shot. And they've been baristas or worked in coffee shops. So they know what their clients are going to, are facing but the idea is to have them kind of be fresh and kind of work their way up the ranks, you know, start as a customer service representative, then become a salesperson sort of thing. I like the idea of being interviewed across, like getting interviewed by an accountant to me would be like, <laughs> what are we doing here? <laughs> but that's a, 
because I think a really classic divide you find in a company sales versus the world yeah. is like you can get that mentality and then then the business has to choose like oh shoot do we value the sales team on this one or the other side and that that's an interesting way that probably helps a lot with that issue that if it's like hey accounting signed off on this hire too it's yeah. like we're all accountable yeah it's still sales versus the world yeah <laughs> <laughs> i i know that and it's sales people always going to be right exactly <laughs> no it's uh i'm realizing more and more that's not the case uh third world coffee or not third world um i'm sorry third wave coffee mm-hmm. when did this become Actually, I, I guess I should start and say, like, is it how big of a part of your business is it? Is it a big par- part of the green coffee or is it like different from the revenue side just because it's like a higher priced coffee? Like, is it a I guess I'm trying to figure out a good way to phrase this is third world as big a deal in the importing side as it is on like the cultural side here in the U.S. Third wave. Third wave. Okay. I'm sorry. I keep saying third world. I'm sorry. We were talking about third world countries earlier. Uh I mean, I, I, you know, I think that that was kind of a pivotal substantive move in specialty coffee to make you know, really high-end special coffees uh, important and to establish those relationships. And really kind of like it's, it also kind of started that huge trend of roasters traveling to origin, you know, because we were doing that with Cup of Excellence. And it was, it was with a group. I mean, I think... Like Jason's first trip to Brazil was with SCAA, and they mm-hmm. went on a big bus with Ted Lingo, who was the president of SCAA, and you know some people signed up for that, but it was an organized like tour thing. But then when Cup of Excellence came along, we would go you'd go by yourself. I mean, I went to Nicaragua once with CQI as a as just as a cupper because they needed they wanted cuppers to evaluate the coffees, and you to get there. <laughs> so we this kind of opened up this world to you just fly to San Jose and you get on a get a taxi to take you to the thing and then the farmer picks you up and they take you to their farm kind of stuff. And that was, has been huge. So, I mean, so third wave was probably 15 years ago when those guys started something like that, maybe more with cup of, when cup of excellence was, was yeah. doing that. So for the last 20 years, we've been, everybody's go, I mean, small roasters who probably don't have the budget to go to Columbia twice a year, go to down there and try to pick out their coffees and they want to meet the farmers Right. So, and how, how is it broken down? So would you find that you're working with a lot more roasters of smaller quantity than 10 years ago? No, that's always been our model. Okay. And because so, that's kind of what I was more trying of to, them. Right. And because uh, that's exactly what happened in craft beer too, is yeah. it went from, you know, the main three breweries to all of a sudden now there's thousands and it's like neighborhood breweries. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have that occasion where smaller roasters get bigger, you know, like Ed Dunn sold to somebody who then franchised mm-hmm. it. Um, we had a customer in Chicago that was, you know, father and son thing, and they went to Brazil with us, and they just got they got big, and they're but they're still with us, but they're not, so they're they've kind of changed a little bit where they're buying futures contracts and they're buying full containers and they're booking six months out. Where the small the little smaller guys are just like, hey, I want that farm again, I want that same farm that yeah. I had, I want I want Daniel Munoz's coffee this again like I did last year. Because he went down there with us, and we went to Daniel Munoz's farm, and Daniel fed us the sancocho and gave us beer and took a walk around the coffee, and you get to know him, and the coffee was 88 points, so of course he wants it again. <laughs> That's it's, it's, it's something that it seems like you'd want to work with bigger people. It's, you're working with one contact point. It's a single purchase of a large order, but... I imagine by having a, a lot of roasters, like you said, you have a huge sales team and a lot mm-hmm. more support than a larger company even has. But also it does probably minimize some risk that if a Dunn Brothers decides one year, hey, we're switching mm-hmm. importers, that's got to be something that is mitigated by working with a larger number of smaller yeah. roasters that, hey, if folly with you know that first year where i'm buying a bag if i decide to go somewhere else it's like okay we're, we still want to work with you but yeah and that that's something i'm learning because right. <laughs> <laughs> that's happened a couple times now where you invest all your time and energy into something that they go oh okay we're just yeah. switching now and you go oh oh yeah. okay we had a customer here that was started out where i used to drive the coffee down there in the back of the truck and they got bigger and they bought another i'm company here and then they got bigger and bigger and they got to the side we we actually said no and decided to not work with them because it was just too because the qualities 
as they got bigger and got into grocery store on a national level, the qualities kind of dropped. So they went from Sarah Negras to like a Brazil two, three, then they went to like a, another, like a smaller screen Brazil. And we have the risk that if they, something happens to them, we own that coffee and that coffee doesn't fit with our other stuff. So we said like a few years ago, we said, no, thanks. We're not going to, and it was a lot, <laughs> a lot of volume, but it just got to the point where they got big and it just didn't fit our inventory. That's we didn't, we didn't want to own those coffees if they had trouble. I can't even imagine the conversations behind closed doors on that one. <laughs> Holy yeah, smokes. I, yeah, it, it was because it was my, I mean, I'm the sales guy on that one. So I'm like, come, you know, come on. Yeah. It's going to be fine. Yeah. But it's, I mean, it's like the farther you delineate from the core mission, right. it's the less unique you become. And in this world, especially of coffee, it's so hard to be unique in any way. Right. Oh, that makes me. So to answer your previous question about the, Producers, we did. A, yeah. We have a group in Colombia that we've been working with for a long time, Los Naranjos, and I've been going there for years. Yeah, we were just roasting their coffee. Okay, yeah. it's a wonderful program. It's amazing. And the coffee's delicious. Yeah, but the, I took those guys a, a moisture meter one time because they. I, I was like, "How do you guys check moisture?" They go, "Well, we just we shake it like this next to our ear. I'm shaking my hand next to my ear, or we bite it." I'm like. You know, there's a thing called a moisture meter that you just it tells you if it's eleven percent because they take it they take the coffee to town and it's if it's twelve percent they got to take it home, and taking it to town means putting it in the back of a bus, or on a horse or a wagon. If they don't have a lot of them don't have cars, they have motorcycles. You know, so just to establish this relationship with them, well, then I was a juror in Cup of Excellence in Colombia, and the winner winning coffee was Arnolfo Leguizamo, who is a member of the Los Naranjos association that i gave this moisture meter to and i've been buying his coffee for five years so i had to buy it yeah and it was 41 dollars <laughs> <laughs> a that, pound to, to put that in perspective for someone that i don't know who is that that's not a coffee person would be listening at this point in the podcast but 41 dollars would be uh well above 10 times or about 10 times yeah, 10 11 normal times price. Uh, normal price for like uh what yeah. we're doing what specialty coffee does but he bought a truck Still has that truck, so he could take his coffee to town. He put his kids went to college, and he took his family to see the ocean. They'd never seen the ocean before. I mean, so that's the kind of like relationship impact you we can make at Origin with these guys, you know. And this is the you know tagging on that that third wave thing of going to Origin like the third wave guys did and meeting the producers and buying their coffees and supporting them year after year, and. It's impactful. That's the beautiful thing about it is if you help them, it not only helps you because you're going to get coffees that you can uh, charge more for and higher quality coffees, but also the impact it can have on them. And we haven't, this was, (laughs) this was our year that we're going to get to go to origin for the first time. Obviously that got thrown off. So we're going to place a heavier emphasis on it when things normalize a bit here. Yeah. Uh, But that's the major thing I hear that it's like, you haven't really, you don't know exactly what you're doing as a business until you do that. And then choi- like making choices about coffees becomes very simple. Exactly, And that's that's what I'm looking forward to about it. And obviously this year's that's the least of all of our problems right. or, uh, with everything going on. But that's, that's the number one thing I hear from roasters. That's like the first time you go to Origin, then you really realize that the, the green coffee, you can look at pictures, you can see the right. farm that's coming from, but until you experience and have those interactions, that's just not different. And then the, the irony would be that if you worked in commodity-grade coffee, you'd probably go to a farm and realize what you're doing to hurt everybody in that yeah. area. Or they don't go. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, of course. And it's just like you'd you'd almost want to distance yourself from what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, once a once in a lifetime or once a maybe once a year. I mean, we we did a tour last year with Dunn Brothers and, you know, some of their clients or any any of the tours. We did another tour with their best cup and we went to the the, uh, Andres Roldan's house. His mom was there and she had made these little like pastry kind of things and they're serving you coffee and she brought out some pastries and coffee and juice and that kind of stuff and then you walk around the back of the thing they're all the whole family's there and they're all showered and dressed up to welcome us into their patio Mm -hmm. then you go back around the back of the house and you see that she's been out there she's cooking with sticks she's been out there all day long cooking with little chunks of wood to make us pastries that we think are really cute yeah that's when you realize the disparity here and that's why you're like 
this is not right. That's, and yeah, that's it's <laughs> it's we should pay more. For yeah, this coffee. and and that's the beautiful thing about it that is like, hey, if we work harder and we can sell more as a roaster, mm-hmm. we can buy more and grow in these relationships too. Yeah, because wine at the cafe by my house is nine dollars a glass. <laughs> so why can't people pay? more money for a cup of coffee that's got it you know, i you know the dumb brothers guy tells me a story like a woman comes in and says i knew i want coffee for a dollar and he said well the coffee's more than a dollar as you can see she goes well, well here's a dollar put a dollar's worth of coffee in the cup my coffee is i'm not going to pay more than a dollar hey and yeah <laughs> when you talk about a dollar cup you don't even want to know how <laughs> it got to that dollar of the final cup yeah. I, I think i think that's a great place to, and i love that message that uh i think what you're doing is I, I knew some about cafe imports just from the tour from a few years ago, but it's inspiring as a business person to hear what you've done through mm-hmm. just slow, sustained growth and hard work and just continuing along a singular mission, but also uh, what you've done for the coffee community as a, a, a you yourself and also cafe imports that you're one of the biggest supporters of all these events we have when mm-hmm. that is a thing and hopefully a thing again. And these are the types of things that are really important that I go to these events and I don't even notice who, like, I don't know who's who and you see the names and whatever and you go assume, oh, this must be some huge conglomerate that just funnels money in. And you realize that it's one of the specialty coffee importers that's like over investing in, like you said, like, well, let's throw a party and hope right. people show up. <laughs> like there's no ROI on that. You don't really know, but without like cafe imports and some of the bigger players within specialty coffee, these these competition circuits, like yeah. the things that drive the quality and the enthusiasm and attract new people to the industry, they don't exist. Mm-hmm. And if that didn't exist, I definitely wouldn't be in coffee because I never would have had a place to go to learn. Sure. And uh, so I want to say personally, I appreciate the focus cafe imports puts on supporting and uh, yeah. Good. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, thanks for coming in. My pleasure. I really appreciate the time and uh, I will end it there and say, have a nice day. <laughs>